Judge not, that you not be judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do you not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them on their food and turn to attack you. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be open. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks you for a fish, will you give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So whatever you wish to, uh, that others will do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. You may be seated. If you will, just join me in a moment of prayer. Father God, we thank you for your word, and we pray, God, that you will transform us by the power of the Holy Spirit, Father, that we will be uh, convicted of sin, will be encouraged by the gospel, Father, and our wounded hearts be healed. God, may we look more like Christ by the end of this uh, time together to your glory, Lord, and we pray this in your Son's name. Amen. Once upon a time, two physicians set up shop in the same little town. One physician, who had been in practice for many years, had a reputation of being overly critical toward his patients. Most people hated going to him because of his uh, hated going to him, but they continued to go because he had a vast experience. Over time, however, his overly critical nature began to have an effect. Namely, some of his patients died from undiagnosed cancers. It wasn't that the doctor had not recognized the symptoms. He knew right from the start that there were serious malignant tumors growing within them. It was simply that he was too focused and obsessed with minor problems like dandruff or too many freckles or uh, uh, minor uh, ingrown hairs. And so he became so obsessed with these little things that he never really got around to the real problem which was a serious tumor growing on the inside. And so, because of that, because of his negligence, he was able to point out all the dandruff and all the ingrown hairs and all the minor things and completely neglected to point out the life-threatening cancer growing inside of them. The second physician was younger, more handsome, fresh out of med school. He was far more popular with the community. He was not as much of a sourpuss, and he gave every patient, whether they were six or 60, a sucker every time they came in. He was smiling. He cracked good jokes. He was the most helpful the town had ever seen in giving practical health advice. His bedside manner far exceeded that of the older doctor. However, just a few years after he set up shop in town, several of his patients began to die as well. 
Upon investigation, it was discovered that the happy, lovable, kind-hearted doctor did not want to come across as overly judgmental toward his patients. In fact, he knew that it was because of that reason that lots of his patients left the old doctor to come to him. They felt like the old doctor was overly critical, so he wanted to avoid being overly critical and not lose patience. And so he chose to not point out things like problematic blood pressure and the need to have heart stents put in and the fact that they might die of heart attacks. He sat there, he smiled, he gave them things like Tylenol to take away their pain and sleep aid so that they could get a restful night, all the while knowing that their heart was a ticking time bomb. Here's the question then. Which physician was the better caregiver? I think the obvious answer is neither. Both men are guilty of malpractice and both have failed to make accurate diagnoses and to offer appropriate treatments. In reality, neither doctor deserves to keep his license because both have broken their oath for the, to, to work for the benefit of the sick and to avoid the, trend, the twin traps of over-treatment, that's the older doctor where he's looking at ingrown hairs and, and dandruff and freckles, and therapeutic nihilism, which is what the younger doctor did, where he just remains silent hoping the problem works itself out. Now, I think this parable describes what many people experience with Christians today. Christians today fall in one of these two camps. Either we're guilty of over-treating or we're guilty of therapeutic nihilism, which is actually, in both realities, malpractice. God has commissioned us as Christians, as his people, as his representatives, to bring the medicine of the gospel to dying sinners. We are physicians here to help people with their illnesses and their tumors and their cancers and their sickness with the, with the gospel of Jesus Christ, to point out the cancer of sin and separation with God that is growing within them. And yet, rather than giving the gospel, we have at times overtreated our neighbor, pointing to things, insignificant things, as if those were the primary concerns. Well, they drink. They have tattoos. They don't cut their lawn. They don't go to church as often as we do. So we point to little things, acting as if that's the primary diagnosis, acting as if That's the primary malignancy. And yet, on the other hand, we have fallen into the trap of therapeutic nihilism, failing to point out the true sickness, which is sin, and telling others that they can heal themselves without Jesus. It'll just work itself out. These are minor flaws. Don't worry about your sin. It's a minor flaw, and God is sympathetic with your minor flaws, and he'll simply overlook it. Don't worry about it. I think Jesus' teaching about righteous judgment shows us how to be balanced gospel physicians. Now, I think every single one of us today can benefit from this text because Jesus teaches us how not to become overly critical. And there are some of us in here that are overly critical, overly judgmental, quick to point out the sins or the flaws of others without an eye toward our own sins, quick to point out little, small, insignificant problems without admitting the glaring log in our own eye. And on the other hand, there's some of us who remain silent about sin, acting as if if people just make the right choices, if people do the right things, if they become more moralistic people, then maybe they can be right with God. 
Jesus teaches us not to overlook the deadliness of sin and not to overemphasize insignificant things. He teaches us that healthy, flourishing kingdom citizens are those who exercise righteous judgment, righteous discernment, first toward themselves, then toward those around them, in the hope of pointing people to the Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus' exhortation in this, verse, in this chapter, chapter 7, verse 1, Judge not that you be not judged, is perhaps the best-known Bible passage in all of history. People have memorized two scriptures. Jesus wept and judge not, lest you be judged. Those are the two passages that almost everyone can quote. And yet, it is this passage that is almost always used out of context. Think about when you hear this verse. When, it, when, when somebody starts quoting, judge not, lest you be not judged. It typically happens when the discussion about sin starts up. Or somebody begins to point out some big major problem in somebody's life, like a, like a rebellious streak against God or uh, idolatry, right? It's at that moment that someone's like, whoa, 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 don't you know what Jesus said? Judge not, or you'll be judged. Who are you to call out the sins of others? I think it's ironic that those same people that often use that in that, in that way can be heard later as they gossip about other people's flaws. Now, I'm not judging, because you just said not to judge. But did you hear what I saw so-and-so doing last week? Now, I think Jesus never intended his words to be used as a get-out-of-a-discussion-about-sin-free card, nor to be used as a twisted permission for non-judgmentally gossiping about other sins. The problem is that we, in the 21st century, do not understand what Jesus meant by judge. We tend to think of judging as only condemnation or criticizing someone else. But the word judge, while it certainly can include condemnation or criticism, it often refers to much more than mere criticism. It can mean discernment. It can mean decision-making, right? I make a judgment every night whether or not I'm going to have dessert or not. Right? And it typically comes to how fat I desire to be. And there's a real small, narrow scale about my perfect weight. Just a little obese, but not too obese, right? <laughs> so we all judge in certain ways. When you go to buy a car, you are making judgments. When you married your spouse, you are making a judgment. So judgment doesn't just mean condemnation or being critical. It can mean coming to a conclusion about something. I think in that light, Jesus is not saying, do not judge, period. Because that would take it out of context with the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, there's other parts of the Sermon on the Mount that call us to good judgment. I'll give an example. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 15 through 20, Jesus says, beware of false prophets. Didn't Jesus just judge them? Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Is he not calling his, his Christians, his people, to be discerning people? You have to look at someone's fruit and judge whether those fruits belong to that of a false prophet or a true teacher. So I don't think he's just simply saying, don't judge, period. Don't say anything bad about sin. Don't call out sin. Don't expose sin. If he was saying that, then this is one of the first contradictions in the entire scripture that we have found. So Jesus must not be talking 
about that. I think it should go without saying that we have to be discerning people. We must not throw out the baby with the bathwater. Jesus is decrying a particular type of judgment. So what does Jesus mean when he says, do not judge? Interpreting his words in context, it seems that Jesus is speaking out about hypocritical, ungodly judgment. Judgment directly merely towards others and not a judgment that's submitted to God and applies to ourselves. I think Jesus still expects his people to speak openly about sin. We must call sin for what it is. It's a loving act to speak about sin. Just like it's a loving act for a doctor to tell the truth about someone's cancer. Or to tell the truth about someone's blood pressure problem. It's a loving act to speak about sin and the treatment for sin. The solution to sin. Salvation in Jesus Christ. It's a loving thing to do that. But it's an unloving thing to be overly critical about insignificant external things and think that that is godly judgment. I see in this text four primary characteristics of righteous judgment. And as we walk through this text, I hope you see them as well. And my prayer is that, beginning with me and then going on to you, that we will be, be convicted by the way that we have poorly judged people, that we have pointed the finger at other people, have condemned others and criticized others without actually understanding the grace of the gospel that applies to us and to others. And so if there's anything that I want from this morning, is that I and our whole church will be known not for being the two malpracticing doctors, one who's overly critical and one who's not discerning enough. Instead, that we will be righteous people who provide righteous judgment according to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus begins with the first principle. He says this, Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. He's simply saying true justice applies the same holy standard towards everyone. It is a one-size-fit-all. Jesus says that the standards by which we judge others will be used against us as well. If we, as people, are going to call out the shortcomings of others, you must be aware that God will call out your shortcomings as well. There is a righteous judge who stands over you. You are not the righteous judge who stands supreme over everyone else. The judgment you give to others will be applied to you as well. It's a very basic principle. Critical judges receive critical judgment. Now, Jesus questions his hearers, and this is a, I just think Jesus is so pastoral in the way that he questions this. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye? In this, Jesus points out a natural human tendency. That is, we naturally, easily see the flaws in everybody else's lives, right? But completely ignore the major sin problems in our own life. This type of critical thinking is not that dissimilar from Phariseeism. From this Pharisaical tendency to point out these minor flaws while at the same time ignoring the big massive cancer in our own life. The Pharisees, for example, were quick to point out the fact that Jesus' disciples didn't wash their hands properly. 
don't you know you're going to spread the coronavirus? And yet at the same time, they were completely blind to the fact that they had rejected the commands of God and were teaching the traditions of man as if they were straight from God. Which is worse, not washing hands properly or having a filthy, unclean, disease-ridden heart. And that's the point that Jesus is making. This overly critical eyes toward other this overly critical eye toward others' flaws reveal a blindness to seeing our own sins and our own rebellion. I think we, including me, I just want to be very clear as a very transparent pastor this morning, that we are all prone to this kind of overly critical spirit. We are happy to call out other people's sins, idols, addictions, while at the same time we relabel our own sins, idols, and addictions. My sins are mere mistakes. His sins are atrocious. My idols are passions, over-concern, investment. Her idols are detestable. My addictions are mere character, character defects, while that person's addictions are immoral. A person may critique another person's political position without ever noticing that he himself has made an idol out of politics. One may wrinkle her nose at the way someone else dresses without ever noticing how tacky her own gossip looks in the eyes of God. At other times, we are quick to call others selfish, while at the same time, completely neglecting all the selfish tendencies in our own life. We tend to call people selfish when they didn't serve me, right? When they didn't do what I wanted them to do, what me, myself, was not satisfied because they didn't serve me, so therefore they're selfish, but I'm not. It's easier to point out pride in others and completely ignore the arrogance in our own heart. How many times have we accuse other people for not caring and not loving others, while at the same time we're so committed to our own lives that we don't love and care for others well? My friends, when we do this, we are Pharisees standing in a glass house throwing rocks at an adulterous woman without ever noticing that we ourselves deserve hell because of our sins. Now, while a hypocritical judgmentalism blinds a person from seeing their own sin, godly judgment makes a person aware of the sin in his or her own life. Jesus says it outright. Now, I don't like Jesus' tone, but man, is it so good for us. Man, is it so good for us. What does he say to people who see specks in other people's eyes but ignore the logs in their own eyes? Here's what he says. You hypocrite! I can hear just kind of a tear in his voice. This is heartbreaking. You hypocrite. First, take out the log of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your other brother's eye. I think it's important to see that Jesus still expects his people to help remove specks from other people's eyes, right? He's not saying that speck removal is bad. He's simply saying that you can't properly remove specks out of someone else's eyes when you can't see because you have a log in your own eye. I mean, this is like a blind eye doctor. 
Who wants cataracts removed by a blind eye doctor? No one. Give me a doctor that sees and then remove my cataracts. But if the doctor himself can't see because the cataracts have overtaken his eye, I don't want him coming near my eye with a scalpel. That's basically what Jesus is saying here. What he calls his people to do is he, he says that basically the, the prerequisite for lovingly helping someone else out of their own sin is repentance. Repent of your own sins before you call out others. Do you recognize as easily as you recognize other people's flaws and sins and their rebellions, their idols, their transgressions, do you see as easily your own idols, transgressions, and sins? Are you as committed to pointing out your own rebellion against God and to repent from it as you are eager to call out other people's rebellions against God? Man, it hits a square in the forehead, doesn't it? Repenting of the log in our own eye makes us better physicians. My friends, one of the things that the world has against us is we call that sin and call that sin and call that sin. We speak out against homosexuality, but we cover up the the church members' porn addiction. My friends, homosexuality is a sin, yes. So is pornography. So is heterosexual lust. And yet we too often point out the speck without talking about logs as well. My friends, we have got to get to this place where we begin to speak of sin as sin. Not just some sins as sin and our sins as minor defects, but sin is sin. To a healthy, flourishing kingdom citizen, the biggest sinner in the room is guess who? Himself. The biggest sinner in the room is himself or herself. What would happen if the most concerning sins in the world were not the sins of the left or the sins of the right, were not the sins of Californians or East Coasters? What if the most concerning sins, what if we believe that the thing that is sending the world to hell is not everybody else's sin, but my sin? What if I saw my own transgression, my own rebellion, my own idolatry as the biggest problem in my life? Not his sins against me, my sins against God are the issue. Unrighteous judgmentalism reverses the scale. It makes everybody else's specks seem like logs, and the real log seems like a speck in our own eye. But when you come with a gospel-centered mindset and you begin to see your own sins as dangerous, we begin to approach people like Luke 18's tax collector who lamented and beat his own chest and said, Who am I? He can't even look into heaven. And he declares himself a sinner and unrighteous. But far too often we're like the Pharisee, thanking God that we're not like those people. How a great many divisions, schisms, Splits could be avoided if only people would repent for their own sins first before decrying the sins of others. Do you know how many friendships have been broken 
How many marriages have led to divorce? How many churches have been split because people failed to see the issue of their own sin first? They remain remain blind to their own sin while at the same time they're quick to point out the sins of others. The gospel truth is that all sin is deadly, including my own. Including my own. All sin is deadly, not just the sins that I don't like. Not just the sins I, decl- I condemn in others. And guess what? I need Jesus because of my sin, just like you need Jesus because of your sin. Maybe if we got to this point where we remove logs first, and then we seek to remove specks, maybe then people will hear the gospel. We're all sinners. For all have fallen short. For all, leftist, rightist, conservative, liberals, whatever, for all fall short of the glory of God. And for all people, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God for all people who trust in Jesus is life. My friends, we, we muddy the gospel with our ungodly, overly critical judgment. And it sucks the joy out of our relationships with other people. It sucks the joy out of our friendships. It sucks the joy out of being a part of the people of God. I think there's a second characteristic. Righteous judgment requires discernment. Jesus gives a parable that has stirred up much debate. He says, Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Now, this is a really tricky one. I just got to say, it, it's caused lots of debate and commentaries and scholarly world. And so I just want to try to make it very simple as possible based on how uh, my study went this week. Not giving dogs holy things and not throwing pearls before pigs requires discernment, right? I mean, somebody's got to be able to recognize a pearl and recognize that pearls should not be thrown in front of pigs or recognize something holy and realize that's not to be given to dogs. In Jesus' days, dogs and pigs were symbols of uncleanness. It's the epitome of foolishness that throws something precious and valuable to dogs and pigs. It's like taking something clean and throwing it before something unclean. So Jesus is calling to some righteous judgment here, some righteous discernment. He doesn't want us to be undiscerning simpletons. He wants us to be critical thinkers in the sense of not critical towards a critical attitude, but critical in the sense of we can define the difference between pearls and pigs and between holy things and dogs and know that holy things shouldn't be given to dogs. There are people in the world who will take the holy things and the pearls that you have to offer only to trample on them. The issue in focus is a person's continual hostile rejection. Now, the Old Testament refers to these people as scoffers. These are scoffers. And in Proverbs 9, 7 through 8, it says, Whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abuse. Whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abuse. And whoever reproves a wicked man incurs injury. Do not reprove a scoffer or he will hate you. That's odd for the author of Proverbs to be saying, Don't correct. Don't reprove a scoffer. It'll only lead to your hurt. That's a, that's a weird thing to say in Scripture. Reprove a wise man and he will love you. I think scoffers and what Jesus is talking about, pigs and, and dogs, are these people who willingly mock 
the gospel, who continue in their rejection of the gospel, who are dogmatic and heels sunk into the ground about rejecting the things that God has given. I just see this as humbling. I know that I am committed to give the gospel to everyone I meet. But I also must recognize that God is the only sovereign one who can break hard-hearted, stony hearts, and I am not. He's unlimited in his grace. I am very limited. And so it takes discernment to know what's going to happen. I've got a limited amount of time. I've got 24-7. I've got 24 hours, 7 hours a day, and 12 of those I sleep, or whatever the normal amount is, 8, sometimes 6. I don't sleep 12 hours a day. Um, But I have to think wisely about who God has called me to. Okay, so I've got one neighbor on one side who's made it very clear. He doesn't care about any of this stuff. He doesn't want to know about any of this stuff. And another neighbor who's interested and wants my time and wants to pray and talk and things like that. So if I've got a limited amount of time, what do I do? Well, I think I walk through the door that God has opened and wait for him to open the door that's not opened. Jesus kind of modeled this in Matthew 10. He commanded his disciples to go to all the cities and villages in Israel. He told them to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Now, practically, this didn't deny that they were supposed to go to all the places in Israel, even hard places, even the hard places. They were to go to even the towns that they thought might not accept the gospel. And so they were to be obedient and do that. However, they were to be discerning enough to know when it was time to shake the dust off their feet and move on to the next town. That seems to be a pretty judgmental thing to do, doesn't it? Well, at the same time, it's a command of Jesus. If the town rejects the gospel, shake the dust off your feet and move on to the next town. They need the gospel too. Your limited people keep going. Now, I, you know, I, we don't see this that often today, and, and I'm definitely not encouraging you to say, that person's a pig and that person's a, a dog, because I don't think that's what Jesus is saying. I do think he wants you to discern where you can be most impactful and how you can be most impactful. My wife and I experienced this when we were missionaries in East Asia. We knew that we had been commissioned to share the gospel with as many Asians as possible. There are 1.5 million people in our city, and less than 2% of those knew the, had ever even heard the name of Jesus. 1.5 million people, and less than 2% had even heard the name of Jesus. There's something like, something like 5,000 to 10,000 Bibles were allowed into the city every year. Now, you think of 1.5 million people, it's, it's a gross, like, imbalance. We wanted to take the gospel to everyone, but we learned really quick that if we injudiciously just shared with everyone on the street, we were going to get kicked out pretty soon. There were a couple of times that we'd be in the park and we'd have to ask some questions. Kind of, okay, they, they seem really interested. Is this a door that we're walking through? Or are we about to get bit by a dog? I mean, there are secret police in China. We had, to, we had to understand exactly who it was that we were speaking to. Or else not only us, but the local believers in the church themselves could be hurt. We dealt with it with a cult where this lady said all the right things. We brought her into the local church. Next thing you know, she's starting to spread heretical Aryan doctrine. And she had used us to try to get into the local church. And then we had to do some really deep church discipline to figure out and discern. And we lost some people to a heretical doctrine because we weren't discerning enough. 
I think what he's telling us to do here is to be righteously discerning people. Jesus stood in front of King Herod. Here's Jesus' chance to vindicate himself and to prove the whole world that he is son of God. He can win Herod over. Herod says, Jesus, show me a sign. I'm ready for a miracle. But Jesus remained silent. Why did he do that? Herod's a scoffer. Herod wasn't going to listen. Miracles and signs were not going to bring Christ's glory that day in front of Herod. And so there are times that we have to be absolutely discerning. Now, that second principle is important. The third, in principles, the third principle is just as important as the, the first and second principle. The third principle of having righteous judgment is that godly judgment always is preceded with prayer. How many times before we have cast judgment about something have we stopped to pray? Have we stopped to pray? Man, listen to what Jesus says. Ask and it will be given to you. We love this verse. This is another one of our favorites, right? Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Now, this passage is often treated as if it's speaking specifically about prayer in general. Like, just pray and you'll receive. And I I do think there's some general principles that can be learned about prayer from this passage. However, in context, Jesus' point still has to do with being righteous, godly discerners. It's still the same theme throughout. What hope do we have to discern logs from specks? What hope and what confidence do we have to accurately discern holy things, dogs, pigs, and pearls? History shows that the church in general is, by and large, poor judges, poor discerners. We are constantly throwing pearls to pigs and sacrificing things that aren't pigs as if they were pigs. Okay? We're, we're bad judges. We're bad discerners. So what hope do we have that we can righteously judge That we can righteously discern right from wrong. Righteously discern something that is sacred from something that is sinful. You have no hope in and of yourself. You must come dependent in prayer. You must take it to the Lord. You must pray. Jesus calls us. To seek wisdom from the Father, to seek discernment, and to know that we are dependent on Him to recognize sin. We are dependent on Him to speak about sin, not on ourselves. Jesus says that when you don't know something, you should pray. When you don't know how to speak about something, when you don't know the answer to this really critical thing, how do you talk to your neighbor about issues of the day? How do you, you, you know that? Uh, your neighbor has a teenage daughter who's pregnant. She's contemplating abortion. How do you reach out to them and help them? Don't go in alone on your own. Pray. Depend upon the Father. Say, God, please show me how to help these people. I want to help them see that abortion is the wrong choice. While at the same time, I want to do it in such a way that's loving and wins their hearts. God says that if you pray, He'll answer. He uses this lesser to greater principle. Which one of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if, his, if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good gifts to those who ask him? 
My friends, the point is simple. If I, as a human, sinfully flawed father, know how to give good gifts to my kids, how much more does a perfect, unlimited, eternal father know how to give good gifts, good gifts to his children? Do you hear the similarity of what Jesus is saying with James 1? In James 1, 5, James says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask the Father who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. My friends, before you open your mouth in judgment against somebody else's sin, ask yourself, have I taken this to the true judge? My friends, he's the Supreme Court. He's the Supreme Court. You have no authority without him. So you meet a friend and you know that there's a clear sin. You see it in God's word. You want to know how to approach it. You want to know how to help rescue them. You want to know how to remove the speck. Pray to the one who has all wisdom in the world and will give you wisdom. He wants you to help people out of sin. While at the same time, there's a way to do it that the good physician knows how. So pray for discernment. Godly judgment is judgment that leans on God's wisdom and not on our own understanding. The fourth and final principle of righteous judgment is that it is full of love. It is full of love. This principle is found in what is often called the golden rule. Jesus says this, So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. The word so, or therefore, shows that this Golden rule is connected with everything Jesus has just said. He's just told us how to do righteous judgment. Therefore, here's the conclusion. What you want others to do to you, do to to them. How often would we speak in judgment against someone if we just simply stopped and asked, is this the way I would want someone to speak about my sin? Is this the way I would want people to handle my flaws? What we're really dealing with is an act of love. Just as kingdom citizens are not to judge unless they know they themselves will be judged for sin, so also they're not to treat others in a way that they would not want to be treated. This is the bookends of the section. Right through it all, the simple message is, regardless of what you do, when you speak about sin, do it in such a way that is loving. Be loving people, not overly judgmental, overly critical people. Be loving in your judgment. A doctor is loving when he speaks honestly and yet gently about a person's tough diagnosis. Jesus talks about the law and the prophets, and that should remind us of Matthew 22, where Jesus summarizes the law and the prophets as loving one's God and loving neighbor as ourselves, loving your neighbor as ourselves. My friends, healthy, mature, thriving kingdom citizens are those who do not judge others without love, are those who do not speak about others in ways that they would not want to be spoken. How often have we been found to be in a private room whispering about someone else and yet offended when we walk in the room and find that people are whispering about us? That's hurtful, isn't it? It's not loving, isn't it? My friends, this is a moment of transparency. I'm a pastor. I am used to people whispering about me. And yet I am also completely uh, cognizant that if I ever whisper about you, I'm in big trouble. 
The key hermeneutic in all of this is be loving people. Be loving people. How would you want others to rescue you from your sin? Let's put it another way. If you are standing in line of a bus careening toward you, what would you want other people to do? Stand there and talk about how you're going to die? Or lovingly rush towards you and as gentle as possible, knock you out of the way? Do to others what you want them to do to you. Lovingly help people out of sin because Christ has lovingly helped us out of sin. Now, as ironic as it may be, the way you treat other people, the way you treat people in this room is a foretaste of the way you will be treated by God himself. I think this is a divine passive, meaning he's not just simply saying other people will do to you that way. I think it's saying that God is that way. Think of the parable of the unforgiving servant. The king forgives the servant of this massive debt. The servant then goes and overly criticizes his servant, his, his fellow servant, demands immediate satisfaction, throws him in the prison, and what happens? The king gives him the same thing that he did. My friends, we must not be graceless, unforgiving servants. We must be servants that have realized that we are forgiving people. Because we have been forgiven people. Now, in these last few seconds, if anyone embodies what it means to be exercising righteous judgment, it's Jesus Christ himself. In the light of his perfection and his identity as the Son of God, the whole world stands under his righteous condemnation. John 5.22 says that all judgment has been given to him. All judgment has been given to him. This means that the moment when the Pharisees drugged the adulterous woman before his feet, Jesus really was the one without sin who had every right to cast the first stone. And yet he doesn't. Why? Not because he says she's not sinned. In fact, he tells her, go and sin no more. He recognizes that it's sin. He doesn't cast the first stone because he is going to bear that judgment on himself on the cross. See, here's the irony of it all. The adulterous woman found the truth that grace is Jesus stepping in on our behalf. Not because we're not sinners, but because we are sinners and deserve judgment. And yet, the judgment has been placed on his shoulders. He, the righteous judge, receives the condemnation for sins on our behalf. Now, how could we not be people willing to bear the cross to point people to Jesus? We throw stones. We put on crosses. We nail people to them. We mock. We laugh. We whisper. All the while forgetting that that's what they did to our Savior. And what our own sin cost the Savior. My sin put the crown of thorns on his head. My sin drove the nails. Not the sins of the Romans. Not the sins of the Jews. Not the sins of the Pharisees. My sin My personal sin, my singular individual sin, required the death of the perfect Son of God. And by the grace of God, my sin has been forgiven because Jesus died for me, did not cast a stone, but took up my cross and received the stone deserved for me, died and rose again so that I may live without judgment, without condemnation, 
And now there is no condemnation for me because I'm in Christ who refused to pour out condemnation but drank the cup of my condemnation. My friends, that is gospel-centered judgment. To be good physicians, you must be gospel-centered people. How great it would be for no one to speak about homosexuality without also speaking the gospel. I mean, how unloving is it to make a diagnosis without offering treatment? How great it would be for no one to speak about gossip or pornography or, or slander or, or pride or arrogance without also speaking about the cross upon which arrogance, pride, slander, homosexuality, pornography, and all these things were nailed to the cross. Gospel-centered judgment requires that we speak the gospel, that we speak about the Savior who is the solution to the sin in sinners' lives. We speak about sin. We make judgment calls about sin. We call sin for what it is. Sin is sin. But we also speak about the Savior who loves all sinners and offers salvation to any who come to him. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your uh, truth in this word. We pray that we will reflect this, Father. God, may we be people who... um, Apply the gospel to ourselves first. Repent of our own sins. To be discerning people. To pray for discernment and wisdom from God. And to love others with a genuine heart. May we not neglect the gospel. For the sake of ungodly poor judgment. But Lord, let us be godly, honest, discerning people. Who talk about the judgment of sin. But also the salvation that comes in Jesus Christ. God, we love you. We pray that people from all backgrounds, Father, in all sins, Father, will hear the good news of Jesus and that they won't feel as if our church has picked on a specific sin or that our church has spoken out about only some sins, but that we decry all sin because it's that which, which caused Christ to die, which led Jesus to the cross. And may we speak of the goodness of your love and giving forgiveness to all who come to you. And we pray this in your son's name.